Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are executive art director Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. And senior editor Maddie Kenny. What's up? Plus, we'll bring in our much-vaunted editor, Tom McKenna. Hi. For the wrap-up on what went down at Colonial Williamsburg's Working Wood in the 18th Century Conference. And later on, Lee Valley Tools technical advisor, Vic Tesla. Did you just call me Maddie? I did call you Maddie. I like Maddie. Did anybody ever call you Maddie? People used to call me Eddie. Yeah. You can call me Eddie. It's all right. Anyhow, uh, as I always say, if you like this podcast, be sure to spread the word to your fellow woodworkers. Stop by our iTunes page, leave a comment, maybe a nice rating if you feel we merit it. You can also catch us on iHeartRadio. Okay, with that, I have um, an interesting little segue topic for this week, and it, it struck me because... Uh, it's something that I have thought about extensively over the years, and I'm sure you two will make uh, fun of me. Nose picking. That's <laughs> nose picking. Uh, it, so it, it, it came in originally as a question from a guy named Mac who writes, So what the heck do you guys do with all of your wood chips? I've collected eight 30-gallon bags of chips in the past six months, and I can't bring myself to putting them in the garbage. A botanist friend told me they're not the best mulch because they would deplete nitrogen in the soil, so I've been experimenting with ways to use the chips as fuel. Lately, whenever I do a glue-up, I take the brown paper I use to protect my bench and pile on a few scoops of chips, roll it up, and use it as a fire starter. This works really well as my chip log burns surprisingly slowly, yet hot enough to start some larger pieces of wood in the fireplace. There's no way I can use enough of the chips to start fires to put a dent in my abundant supply before the mild heating season in Portland, Oregon is over. I've been thinking of converting a hydraulic log splitter to press the chips into presto logs. Have you heard of anyone doing this successfully? Can't wait to hear how each one of you deal with this universal woodworking dilemma. Darn it, Mac! I have had the same question. So, I... This really struck me because I think it was about a year ago I had the same thought of like, you know, I wonder if I could take all my wood chips and find a natural binder, mix it in with the chips, and then press them, you know, compress them under high pressure into logs and burn the suckers. And I, granted, I realize this is not – I'm not going to make like 200 logs a season. It right. take forever. But I, as, as an experiment, I thought it would be kind of fun, you know. So I never thought about using a hydraulic splitter to compress the logs, but that's brilliant. I think so. If you could find some kind of gelatinous, sticky fuel to be the binder, you know, an accelerant of some sort. Well, I don't know that you want an accelerant, though, (laughs) because you're getting into dangerous territory. (laughs) Exactly. Why else would you do it? I wonder if PEG, does PEG dry enough, that polyethylene glycol? I I would try. That's inert. I would try nothing at first, just just yes. the chips, because I've been burning. Basically, I've been burning things like this for about the last four or five winters now. And that um, we have Bio a wood bricks. stove. Um, they're sold under a lot of names. Bio bricks is one. There's Liberty Blocks, Hot Bricks, Liberty Blocks, Eco Bricks, Freedom Bricks, and they're bricks. they're all uh, <laughs> compressed sawdust that they're compressed yeah. under under pressure into these little sort of you know Pez like blocks. Yep, and um, on the packaging for most of them, they say there is no binder. There's nothing really? holding them together. And it's true. It's this brick, but you can flake it off pretty easily yeah. if you're not careful. I suspect, though, that your average log splitter will not produce enough hydraulic pressure. Uh, I don't know about that, actually. I think it, it produces a sizable amount of pressure. It's sizable. About but is a log splitter— I've measured it. <laughs> I mean, it's designed to split a log, but, I mean, yes. this, this wedge— 
is designed to continue in motion. Whereas if you're compressing something, yeah, but you have you have a a hand, you know, a hand actuator yes. that you activate the hydraulic ram with, and once you achieve, you know, once you've gone all the way down, just release it. I mean, I'm thinking. I'm just wondering if you're going to stress out this system the, if you're right. compressing Possible. something and you might right. bend the whole frame or something like that. Yeah. If it's not you have to be careful. But yeah. I wonder if you could um, – so here's the thing. So I wouldn't do it with my own. I would rent one, Ooh, try it on that. That's a good idea. <laughs> I would borrow mics. I already thought about how to do this. So if you've got, like, let's say, like a six-inch cast iron pipe, that is the yeah. you know, length of the log you want, that gets situated on the end of the, the splitter, right? Now, on the business end of the splitter where the wedge is – this is where it gets tricky because you've got to attach – you have to basically attach, like imagine – Some sort of like a piston purpose, or something. A, right. A pipe with a circular cutout on the end of it that would fit within that pipe, right? Mm. So as that wedge comes in, it's pressing the – you know, into the pipe, into the pipe, into the pipe, and it's compressing the – I think this guy's onto something. I hey, never thought about the log splitter. We have already spent far too much time contemplating I'm this. I'm doing this. I hey, have a buddy with a what he needs to do, big log splitter, and I'm going to go split some sawdust. He needs to <laughs> continue doing what he's already been doing, what? rolling them up like That's a tootsie a great roll idea too. Yeah. And, and burning them. Yeah. Or he needs to do the other thing, which is you drive around your town and you find <laughs> in your pickup truck. <laughs> you talking about me? Are you referring to me? No. And you find you know some store that has a dumpster out back. Yeah. And you observe to see what type of trash bags they use, and then you buy those trash bags, and then you start putting your wood chips in those trash bags and throwing them in their dumpster. Okay. Or get some chickens and some guinea pigs and use use, and use those as fire starters. Yes. You yeah. go to a oh, pet not the, store. Oh, not the guinea pigs themselves. No, you use as bedding for the oh, animals. I was going to say, because they would run around the firebox. You go to a local <laughs> pet store, and you see a little bag of wood chips yes. for like 19 bucks. Right. And you're going, oh, my gosh. Start selling it. Yeah, so you could package it. you got to be careful what kind of wood you're Yeah, it can't be any walnut. Like for, you know, horses, you know, for horse bedding it's and that kind pine. of stuff, you got to be really careful about the species of wood. Yeah. So I probably wouldn't even go there, but... Um, I like this idea. I think it's pretty cool. Get some small animals, rabbits, guinea pigs, I, And chickens. I bet you somebody has done this, and it just requires some Googling. I bet you somebody's got a YouTube video up there about how he built his own compression rig to yeah. make bio bricks. I you could make some molds or something and figure out a way to where you can put it in your driveway, fill these things up, and just drive over it with your car. Oh, my God. Everything costs time, money, and well, frustration. I know. That's what I'm saying. This is really just for the fun of it, just to see if you could do it. It's one of those things like you're not actually going to make – you know, a quart of, you know, yeah. uh, logs a year out of this stuff. I, think, I can think of 10,000 ways I'd rather spend my time than doing this. Listen, if you were homesteading. <laughs> I'm not homesteading. Right? You would have to find out how to use every bit of every leftover anything. I'd, be, I'd have a, the, the puffiest, most uncomfortable sleeping mattress. <laughs> <laughs> if it were fairly convenient to do this. I would be, and that's, and that's the key. I would be motivated like you, Ed. I would want to turn every piece of sawdust yeah. I have into something I could burn in my wood stove. That'd no, be a good I hear thing. you. And like I said, it's not convenient. So it's really just you're only doing this to see if you can for fun. Just right. pack, experiment. Pa- pack it into a brown paper bag and use it to start your fire. I actually start my fires. You know what? I I save uh, our egg cartons, and then I go into the basement. I get a bunch of dust and chips, and I put them in the egg carton, and I put that right under my. Um, uh, my kindling, and oh. I start that, and that works great. Yeah, and then awesome all the poisons start. that come out of the. Well, they're plastic cartons, but they melt pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyhow, all right. So let's let's go into the real 
the real stuff. Uh, first question this week comes from Adam, who writes, Regarding my Lee Nielsen 4.5 smoother, it's become clear to me that I need to camber the blade because it leaves tracks on my otherwise, otherwise finished pe- uh, surfaces. The question is, how do I put a sweet camber on the blade without ruining it? I think I'm too afraid to grind the corners. On one of the podcast episodes, Asa suggested that all you needed to do to camber was lean on the corners of the blade a little heavier than the rest of the edge when honing. I attempted this at one point and put some nice gouges in my precious, and by precious I mean expensive, Shapton glass stones, and I'm still getting tracks when planing. Thanks a lot, Asa. Just kidding. Asa's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> So uh, it sounds like somebody's got a heavy hand. Yeah, I don't know if, if I would fault Asa's advice in this particular case. But I let's think. do it anyways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Asa, you screwed yeah. up. Next question comes from... <laughs> I think the implementation of the advice you know, might be the culprit here, and that you definitely, uh, to get a camber, don't grind. I mean, you're only talking... Yeah, Adam. You know, a couple thousandths <laughs> of an inch camber across the width of the blade anyway, which is, you know, number one, you can't see it. Number two, there's no way to control that in you know, at a bench grinder. So the best way to do it is with a honing guide and it's moderate pressure on either side of the blade. And the trick here is you don't want to be putting so much pressure or lean so much that you're actually lifting the blade up off the surface right. and only hitting those edges. The point isn't to really knock those corners. The point is to sort of create a subtle curve over the entire width of the blade. That's the key. Subtle. Right. right. <clears throat> yeah, this, the camber only has to be equal the depth of the shaving you're going to take. So if you're taking like a 2,000th shaving, right. Right. it only has to be a 2,000th camber. Actually, a little bit more because the bed is angled at 45 degrees. If it were angled uh, at 90 degrees yeah, straight up and down, wrong, that would Matt. be true. But I take back my agreement earlier. The bottom line, to, to, <laughs> to Matt's point, the bottom line is, is it's very, very little. Yes. Small amount. You can also uh, – I have the, the uh, Veritas MK2, the honing jig, which I love. Yes. It's like a Cadillac honing jig, and I have the. Uh, it has two wheels on it. One is a flat wheel, and then the other one is for cambering, and it's got a slightly. Um, oh, the you can barrel you can replace shape. A barrel shape. Yeah, yeah that flat wheel. It's too wide. It's too good at keeping the blade flat. Right. I cannot camber with that thing. Yeah, so. I have that that jig as well, and cambering is a little challenging. That's why I use the camber wheel. Yes, no, yeah. I use the camber wheel. But but I mean, Oddly, you can achieve the camber this with a regular. Shop is missing. You can. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, anyhow, uh, but you can use a regular cheapy DP twenty five dollar honing. You can use a, si- uh, yep. a side clamping jig. Yep. Yeah, yeah, because that's got a little maybe half inch wide wheel. Works fine. Mm-hmm. I so, love the one that I stole. F- I mean, uh, that I got for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> so I I typically uh, hone with uh, three different grades of sharpening stones. Like I have you know one thousand, four thousand, eight thousand Norton stones. That camber, I don't put it on with a 1,000 grit stone because it's too aggressive and I get too much camber. If I wait until the 8,000 grit, I'm not removing enough steel in order to get the camber I want. So You that, will if you have about a week. That middle grade stone, <laughs> that 4,000 grit stone, whatever your medium grit stone is, I like to put the camber on with, with that grade there. Yeah. And it's just enough to give me the camber, do the same thing with the 8,000 grit, have a good camber. When I go to resharpen, at the 1,000 grit stone, I take it back to dead flat and then reestablish right. the camber. With so the I'm not going stone. more and more and more and more. Yeah. I use my polishing stone to do the camber, and I get a nice camber. I know you do, Matt. Yeah. You know why? Because I'm awesome. Because you don't have a medium grit stone. <laughs> I do, too. But it's a 6,000 grit. All right. All right, ladies. The, I think I have a 13,000 grit Moving polishing on. stone. Thrasher. Mine's about 13,500. Mine's 13.5 and three quarters. Dang it. 
Thrasher, otherwise known as Barry, writes, I recently bought a house and was granted a 12-foot by 20-foot alcove in the basement as my space. I totally understand the feeling of finally having designated shop space after having to work in the driveway at my old house, which had no garage and only a crawl space for a basement. My new basement walls are 12-course cinder block covered by blanket insulation down to the second course. The blanket insulation sticks out about 3 to 4 inches. The concrete slab floor has a drainage gap near the wall, but I don't see much moisture in there or on the walls, so I guess they did a good job building the home in 1992. My question, would it be okay uh, to get rid of the blanket insulation in this alcove and dry lock the walls like you did, Ed, and then attach studs flat to the walls? I would probably attach T111 to the flat studs. I want to conserve as much of the 12-foot dimension as possible, and leaving the blanket insulation and or building a partition wall with the studs on edge would severely cut out real estate. I live in Rochester, New York, so similar to Connecticut weather-wise. So I have my own experiences to impart here, and I also consulted one of the guys at Fine Home Building, Patrick McComb, uh, who's a pretty smart cat, uh, about your options, uh, Barry, or Thrasher. Um, So here's the deal. Uh, Regarding uh, dry lock, uh, it's important to say that dry lock is not a panacea for moisture. Um, the most important thing with a basement is to make sure that the soil outside your home is graded away from the foundation. You have functioning gutters, uh, downspouts, uh, and leaders that take the water away from the foundation. That's number one. Um, after that, in your basement, yeah, you can take off the blanket insulation. I talked to Patrick about this. As far as dry locking the walls, if you don't have any moisture, you don't really need to do that. But um, if you wanted to just cut out the potential for that little bit of every once in a while errant minor moisture yeah dry lock will do that um it's not going to stop water completely penetrating your walls but it'll it'll help it's resistant as far as the insulation and whatnot is concerned here's what you want to do there is a product called wallmate rigid foam insulation wallmate wallmate and what this is it's you know, it's rigid foam insulation. It comes in like eight foot long sheets that are a couple feet wide. And along either long edge, there's a rabbit. Okay. So you use construction adhesive, make sure it is a non solvent based adhesive because solvent based adhesives are going to eat your foam. Um, use that to glue this stuff on your wall. When those two rabbits on either edge meet each other, you're going to have a two and a half inch wide channel that's perfect to put in furring strips. And you can attach those with either a powder-actuated nailer or uh, Tapcon screws. Okay, now you've got nailers up. Go powder-actuated. Those I things love are awesome. those things. Yeah. <laughs> and they're fa- I'm probably faster. I've used Tapcon quite a bit. Yeah, they're a pain. You have to have the right kind of drill, really, yeah. to do it, which needs to be a hammer drill. Yeah. yeah you can't do it with a standard drill. So um, once now the next question is, can you put the T111 right on there? And I, I consulted Patrick about the code implications here. Um, the foam is somewhat flammable, so you need a bit of a <laughs> somewhat. And by somewhat, I mean it will really burn. <laughs> it's, it's prone to spontaneous combustion. So you need some sort of a break, some sort of a barrier. You can't just put the T111 right over the foam. No good. So you can you have two options here. Either you put some gypsum up, uh, also some known as drywall, right, and then you put the T111 over that. Or you just put the drywall up and leave it be and paint it nice, bright white and have a lot of reflectivity. And you've still got nailers buried in there that you can find with a stud finder easy enough for putting up shelving and yeah, hanging Yeah, put a sheet of plywood and, up you know. here or there if you want a, right. a little tool rack or something like that. So wallmate. I, when I saw this, I was like, oh, that's perfect. It's brilliant. We should point out we're completely joking about <clears throat> spontaneous combustion. I don't want us to get sued. 
Okay there. <laughs> what is kind of cool, though, and I would, I would recommend doing is um, along the top edge of that insulation against the wall is I would – how thick is this stuff, Ed? Is it like three-quarters inch? Uh, it's like, it I think it's inch? like inch and a half. I would put up some sort of nailer across the top, all, you know, continuous length yeah. uh, that I could drill into after the fact. So I'm not looking for these little furring strips or something like that. I can just, if I'm hanging a cabinet, I'll just drill right into that yeah, little, a long continuous that, strip. That nailer strip at the top. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Okay. So moving on to our first segment of the day, uh, Matt, you hit the road to the cold, cold North, uh, and met up yep. with Lee Valley Veritas Tools technical advisor, Vic Teslin. Vic, yes. the man Teslin, as yeah. he's known. As he known as Vic the man Teslin. I have no idea. I just made that up. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, I was up there um, a couple of months ago, and I uh, spent a couple of days with Vic, went and toured the Lee Valley uh, facilities, saw the, you know, the, the places where they make all their tools. Yep. Very cool. Uh, met Robin Lee, the owner and president of Lee Valley Tools. Um, and then I spent some – oh, then we called him on the phone from here, didn't we? <laughs> yes, because I forgot to set yeah. you up with all the podcast equipment. I forgot equipment. to take the podcast equipment. So then we No, you didn't forget. I forgot. Yeah, you forgot. It's all your fault, Ed. And by uh, forgot, I mean ran out of time. So we did a phone interview with him. Uh, and he has a pretty interesting story because he uh, – I, uh, how he got his job at Lee Valley is pretty fantastic. Um, you know, he just – he said, you, you know, if you guys ever need someone, I'm looking for a job. And then he just got a call the next day and said, you know, come in. And uh, he was, you know, trying to convince Robin Lee to hire him. And he says, no, you don't understand. You're going to get the job. Just tell me what you want to do. And so he sort of got to create this position for He's himself. He's that good. <laughs> well, there's only seven people in Canada, so, you know, there's not a big pool. Right, right. <laughs> you know? um, but he's a good guy, and uh, it's a pretty enjoyable conversation that we have. So, yeah, right. so if anyone wants a job. Just call Robin Lee. <laughs> just call him up <laughs> right. and tell him what you want to do. All right. Tell him, tell him that Vic Teslin sent you. Well, here he is, Lee Valley Veritas technical advisor, Vic Teslin. Hey, this is Matt Kinney, and uh, I'm here talking to uh, Vic Tesselin, who is a uh, has an article in an upcoming issue of Fine Woodworking about uh, hand planes for hand cut joinery. And Vic is also a woodworker, and he works at Veritas Tools up in Canada. So uh, let's get started, Vic. Just give us a bit of background on you. Um, how did you? Well, tell us first. Tell us who you are and what you do. Well, my name is Vic Teslin, and uh, I uh, am a furniture maker. I, uh, I build furniture in my uh, own shop here uh, in Carlton Place, Ontario, up here in Canada. And, uh, and uh, I kind of do two things. I work in my shop, and I also work uh, uh, with Veritas Tools in the R&D department. And so what does that entail, working, at, uh, in, the R working in the R&D department? <laughs> Uh, I work with the guys, you know, we talk about different, uh, you know, we look at different hand tools and, you know, I kind of give them a woodworker's point of view as far as, you know, how, how you know, a woodworker is most likely going to use the tool and, and that sort of thing. I also do quite a bit of testing, um, so um, it's a horrible job, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it, right? Um, yeah. 
So I think, don't you also do some, uh, through Veritas, you do some teaching or training, is that right, of employees? Yeah, that's right. Like, I I run training for uh, for staff members, and I also uh, teach, uh, there's a seminar program at all of the stores up here, um, and uh, I usually um, run seminars in in the Ottawa store. Yeah. And there's also the video program as well. Um, You know, we do videos on... That's new right. Veritas products and some, you, some stuff that's covered by Lee Valley. So, so I keep busy. You are the uh, the talent on screen for Veritas's uh, videos on YouTube, and also I know there's some on the on the website as well. Uh, that's right. Although yeah. talent is uh, odd word. Well, you know, use loosely. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the the most of our listeners who live in the United States may not know that. Uh, Veritas actually has a lot of retail stores throughout Canada, right? Yeah, Lee Valley does. That's right. Oh, Lee yeah, Valley, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right. There's stores all across Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fifteen of them at last count, I believe. Yeah, I think I've been into two or three of them. They're kind of cool. They're pretty cool. Um, and uh, each yeah, one. But... Go ahead. No, sorry. Go for it. I was just going to say, at each one of them, right, there's a, a little classroom space with benches and Veritas tools, and uh, people can come in and take a class, say, like building a, a small box or something, or learn how to use hand tools, uh, and you all do that on a regular basis as well, right? Yeah, that's right. We cover stuff, everything from hand tools to power tools, uh, turning classes, carving classes, you know, we... Uh, we also do stuff uh, because Lee Valley carries uh, a huge s- selection of gardening stuff. Uh, you know, there's uh, topics on uh, on various gardening stuff as well. So, oh, that's cool. I didn't I didn't uh, realize that. Um, I think it's it's kind of a cool story about how you got your job at uh, Veritas. Is that something you can tell us, or is that something you don't want to tell us? Um. Well, I mean, it was uh, you know, it was a situation that. Uh, you know, I was kind of looking for for a change in pace, and uh, you know, ended up getting uh, hauled into into Robin's office. And uh, I don't know; he may regret that now. I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting uh, it was an interesting situation, um, and uh, and they put me to work right away, so it was a good thing. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, all right, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, you also, before you were at Veritas, you were the editor of a Canadian woodworking magazine, right? Yeah, actually, it's the only one left now. It's Canadian Woodworking and Home Improvement Magazine. That's right. Yeah. From what I understand, in order to survive, they had to also start covering the making and consumption of poutine. Is that correct? That That's true, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, woodworking is not, I mean, there's only 14 of us up here that woodwork. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, you know, you, as you can imagine, once you sell those 14 subscriptions, you got to start looking other, way, but there's other ways to make money. 35 million people who like poutine. Yeah, that's right. That's we right. go through a bit of it. That's right. <laughs> All right, so... Um, let's go ahead. Let's get, uh, move on to some other questions. Uh and to start with, uh, why don't you tell us, what is your favorite? This is something we do on a regular basis on the show, on the podcast. We talk about what's our favorite tool of all time this week. So just move, removing the this week part, what's your favorite tool of all time? Oh, my goodness. Um, 
I don't know. I'm really partial to the plow plane, which is kind of a maybe an odd answer, but it um, it's just so simple and it works so well that um, it's one of my favorites because you know putting grooves into wood is uh, is a pretty common practice for for most woodworkers and um, doing it with a plow plane for me is so so easy and so quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something really cool about the shavings that it takes, these big curly cues that come off, and uh, it's a sort of a relaxing thing to do. Yeah, I mean, it it, um, it, it works quickly. It does, it does a good job. I mean, um, I, well, I mean, you were even able to make shavings with it. I know, even me. So. <laughs> if you can imagine yeah, that. Yeah, that was pretty fantastic. <laughs> we know there, there are chimps at the, uh, at the zoo that could probably do it if I can do it. <laughs> Um, now I, it probably won't surprise people to know that you personally own a Veritas plow plane, but have you ever used any other ones besides that one? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've tried some wooden ones that are pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, actually I tried one of, uh, uh, Barrett and Sons, uh, plow planes that make beautiful, uh, beautiful wooden plows. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's one of those things that I've always kind of wanted to uh, to build one day on my own. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think that they're uh, they're they're a fantastic tool. Yeah, I I've made some plow planes that are a dedicated width and a dedicated you know distance from the edge for the groove, and I do I I, I really enjoy using them. But yeah, uh, and in fact, I was it wasn't long ago that I was reading that article that you had put. <laughs> Uh, in fine woodworking about the about those planes and and uh, we're looking at doing them myself um, you know with a little little bit of a different uh, I was going to see if I could make a dedicated uh, plow to do grooves for drawers using um, regular size plow blades plow uh, blades pardon me mm-hmm. and um, so that'll make the body a little smaller but um, but I think uh, I think I could make it work yeah, sounds cool. So, uh, um, on a related theme, uh, going from one favorite thing to another favorite thing, uh, what's the f- your favorite project that you've done that you've made? Something you know, your favorite piece of furniture? Oh, geez. Um, you know, I kind of—it's funny. Eh? It's like trying to—you know—who's who, your favorite kid? Oh, I can answer <laughs> that question. <laughs> Oh <laughs> uh, well, see, I only have one, so no. it's easy. Yeah, depending on the day, no one gets hurt. Depends on the day and how well each one's behaving. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, yeah. it's uh, <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's a father's prerogative to be fickle, isn't it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think my favorite one is uh, uh, an entertainment unit that I did. Um, it kind of has different size boxes within it, and um, a. a uh, a bent lamination set of legs on the bottom. All um, right. Yep. I've seen that, that one. was a lot of fun. That's the one that's in your currently in your living room, right? That's right. Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, it was built specifically for uh, the components that I have, um, you know, stereo equipment and, and that sort of thing. So uh, it's always nice when you have a piece of furniture that's built custom for what your requirements are. Sure, and I bet you didn't know that I, I've snuck up to Canada and been spying on your on your house, did you? I I, I did not know that, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but 
but at the same time, I'm not surprised. Right, yeah. Yeah, actually, I should clarify that I was able to see that piece when I was doing the photography for your upcoming article. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, actually, that reminds me, we should probably talk a little bit about your shop, because I think your shop could be, possibly be, the smallest shop I've ever been in. No kidding. No kidding. Not kidding. Yeah, not kidding at all. Um, but wow. it's, uh, it's still a really nice shop. It's a very nice shop. But uh, it's, well, a, thank you. it's a single-car garage, right? In, yeah, it's uh, 170 square feet. 170 square feet. But it is, uh, because it's Canada, it's completely insulated, including the it overhead is, yep. door. Yes. Yep. And uh, you had good lighting. It was warm. And uh, it felt like a shop. That's all it needs to be, right? Yeah, that's all it needs to do. I mean, it's, you know, we, you always, you know, you see pictures of dream shops and, you know, these massive, you know, thousand square foot spaces and stuff. But, um, you know, and you're, regardless of the size of your shop, I think you're always going to want bigger and more. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I really like the size of this shop. Um, and, you know, if we were, if I was ever to kind of do it again, I'd probably only double its size. And I think, that that would be the most that I would ever want. Anything more than that, I think you just end up filling up with more stuff. Yeah, stuff you probably don't really need. Well, yeah, I mean, when you work in 170 square feet, it really forces you to pare down to to what you actually need. And 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 I think the longer you woodwork, the more you realize, you know, you can get a, you can get by with a lot less. Right, that you don't necessarily need all the latest and greatest machinery and power tools, for example. No, and I'm sure I'm sure people who sell power tools and hand tools don't want to hear that. But <laughs> right, but I mean it's true. I mean you. Uh, yeah, what did I, I just cost us with... fifteen advertisers? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> I'm um, still subscribing though. So, <clears throat> well, your subscription price just went up to two thousand dollars a year. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so, uh, speaking of projects and things that you've made, uh, we're, we're, I think we might we'll come back to talk about your shop again and about the tools that you have in there because you have a book coming out that I think is related to this. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. Um, Perfect. So, what's the so we talked asked you what your favorite thing you've ever made is. So now we want to know the opposite. What's the worst thing or the ugliest thing you've ever made? Oh yeah, that's that's easy. Um, uh, it it was actually, uh, I guess, technically the first thing I ever made, um, and it was years and years ago before I had ever taken a class, and this was long before there was uh, you know really helpful things like forums. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that tongue in cheek, I know. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> we we've had this discussion already, you and I, haven't we? Yeah. Um, Woodworking forums the, um, can be very helpful. What's that? I said they can be very helpful. They can be. Yes, yes absolutely. There 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 is some good information on them. Yeah. All right, but we should move on to uh, move on past that topic. Yes, we should. Let's, uh, <laughs> I would hate to lead you into being snarky. Yeah. So <laughs> so. Back to this first project, uh, it was a bedside table for my daughter, mm-hmm. uh, and it was made out of pine, and uh, it was my first attempt at, uh, well, 
It was my first attempt at designing a piece of furniture, and I, I've never really worked from plans um, that much. I've always kind of wanted to build my own thing. And, of course, when you don't know much about furniture design, you end up making some pretty ugly stuff. Um, and this, this side table definitely takes the cake. Uh, I didn't understand wood movement. Uh, I built it in the winter time, and to this day, you can't get the drawers open in the summertime. <laughs> I think we've all um, been so all done that. Forget about whatever's in there. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, but you know, it's it's yeah, it's a horrible piece, um, poorly constructed. Uh, I uh, I stained it with this horrible water-based kind of aniline dye. Mm-hmm. stuff and you know we we know now that pine of course doesn't take stains and dyes very well and that's very apparent right is it uh, still in the house but you know the oh yeah yeah it's still in the house <laughs> i didn't show it to you <laughs> that's surprising um, well my daughter won't let me throw it out yeah well of course i'm sure it means a lot to her because it was made by you yeah well and it was the first thing the, the first thing i'd ever you know i've built her a bed since then and mm-hmm and things like that but i mean she still she won't they won't let me throw it out and i you know and it's funny i i kind of joke about wanting to throw it out but at the same time i i want to hang on to it because um it reminds me of you know valuable lessons you know that you exactly that you gain in woodworking and you get those through experience you know you don't uh, it's easy to read about stuff but until you're you know sitting in your shop and actually trying techniques that's where you really learn about stuff mm-hmm. yeah exactly um, and also, probably, you know, from a perspective, it, it probably is not the worst thing you've ever made, you know, because obviously your daughter uh, likes it quite a bit, so. Well, that's right. I mean, it's all in the eye of the beholder, right? So if, if the client's happy, then why should I uh, Why should I worry about it? Yes, exactly. Um, all right, well, let's see. The next question I have here for you, Vic, is um, what's the best advice you've ever been given by another woodworker? <coughs> Excuse Ooh. me. Um, I think that you know it's funny. I, I um, when I was working at Rosewood Studio, I was um, I was supposed to shop tech for Garrett Hack, mm-hmm. um, but Garrett doesn't necessarily like having a minion. Mm-hmm. Um, so he basically said, why don't you just take the week off and build what we're building? And it was a Demi-Loon table. And so, um, so I did that. Um, and so I was, I was building this, I was, you know, I did, we did the bent lamination for the apron and we were getting, I was getting ready to cut the tenons in the end of the, in the end of the aprons. And so I had this drawing of a, of a jig that I was going to build to put, the, the curved apron onto so that I could run it over the table saw and create a uh, uh, create the tenon. Mm-hmm. And so um, Garrett came by my bench and he was looking at the drawing and he's like, "What do you What do you got going on there?" And I said, "Oh, that's the jig that I'm going to make to cut the apron." And he kind of looked at me like I was a little crazy and he said, "Vic, you've got um, you've got back saws in your <laughs> in your." in your tool cabinet over there. Why don't you just mark it out and cut them out? Mm-hmm. You know, so, and that was, you know, I always tell that story because it, it's, um, we can sometimes get pretty uh, hemmed in 
uh, by, you know, the techniques that we've used in the past. And, sure. You know, we don't necessarily see that there's another option or a better option. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying cutting it by hand is better than cutting it with a machine, but I'll tell you, by the time I abandoned my jig design, uh, it only took me about 45 minutes to lay out, cut, tune, and fit those joints. Um, sure. You know, and I had been drawing that jig for an hour. So Yeah. I mean, that's clearly a case in which doing it by hand would, you know, far less complicated than making a jig to hold the curved apron at the right angle and so forth, you know. Sure. And if I was building 100 of those tables, I would have kept going with the jig. But, yeah, you know, I was building one. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the advice there was, like, I've learned a lot from Garrett Hack, but that was the biggest um, piece of advice I'd ever been given was to just kind of, you know, to look outside of what you're, you know, take take the blinders off and kind of look around and see, you know, there's other ways to do stuff. And, yeah. Probably, the, you uh, know, I to explore that. If I'm thinking about this question, and I'm sure everyone's dying to know what my answer would be. Um, one time someone told me to quit woodworking. That was some good advice that I didn't take. Um, <laughs> uh, but actually, um, the guy that taught me to make furniture, he would, uh, you know, I'd be make, designing furniture, making it in a shop, and occasionally he'd ask me, well, why are you doing that? You know, some design thing or you know, maybe a technique or something. Usually it was design related. He said, why are you doing, why are you doing that? And uh, I would try to answer his question and, and defend myself. And that usually just led to more harassment until, sure. until once he asked me and I said, because I wanted to. And then he, that was it. End of the discussion. So I learned yeah. that is something I learned uh, pretty well is that a lot of times you don't have to defend uh, des- design choices you make, uh, you can simply say, because I wanted to. I don't know if that makes right. sense Right, and I or mean, it, like, I think, um, I think you, it's, it's one of the reasons that I'm not a big um, supporter of forums is because I think that a lot of times the way people choose to do stuff gets put onto the chopping block and people start cutting it up. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and I, and I just, I don't think that that's helpful for people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways to cut dovetails. I mean, there are people out there that even cut them pins first, if you can believe it. I, but, I, I don't believe uh, that. Yeah, I, it's hard to believe, but it's true. <laughs> it's true, I know. Uh, I read it on a forum. Yeah, but, we, act, we actually I mean, hired a that, guy that does that. Can you believe it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. <laughs> but, I mean, that's the destructive nature of that. You know, that's the double-edged sword of, of that sort of situation is that, um, like it's okay to do things differently. It's okay to to use a machine versus a hand tool, or to use you know a dovetail chisel instead of a firmer's chisel, or whatever. I mean, whatever gets the job done gets the job done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right. So I always I used to defend I used to defend what I did to people, but now I just like well that's the way I do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and whenever I'm teaching or whenever I'm <coughs> talking to people about stuff i i never say that this is the way to do it you know i always say this is how i do it um, yeah it's not the right way it's my way well that does it when uh this comes up it reminds me of something i used to tell my philosophy students uh that uh there's no single correct answer but there are a few that are demonstrably false and I think it's the right. same with woodworking. There's certainly no correct way to cut dovetails, but there are some that are demonstrably wrong, 
right. so, you know, and I don't mean, I don't say that'd be flip, but it wouldn't include, you know, it, because it's with a router table or something that, that wouldn't be wrong. The, the, you know, the right. demonstrably wrong way would be to do it in a way that doesn't produce a dovetail. So, um, exactly, yeah. anyways, uh, before we get ourselves into too much trouble, we should move on to another question. Let's see. <laughs> <coughs> and I apologize for, I, I keep coughing, but I'm, I'm getting over a cold. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, tell us about you. So I mentioned earlier that you got a book coming out and that somehow tied into you, sort of the, your shop and the philosophy that, uh, the size of your shop sort of drove you to in terms of woodworking. So why don't you, what's the, what's the, first of all, tell us what's the name of your upcoming book. So the book's going to be called the minimalist woodworker. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole idea behind the book is that you don't need a huge space with huge machines um, in order to woodwork. Um, in some cases, um, you know, if you have a bench and some tools underneath that bench in a corner of a basement or or, or something like that, you you can woodwork. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think when you when people start investigating the craft of woodworking as a hobby, I think they get intimidated by all of the machines that they think they need. I mean, everybody um, everybody goes racing for the table saw section because they figure that that's what they need first. Right. And, I mean, I don't own a table saw anymore. I got rid of it um, a little while back. So, um, so, so my point is, is that, you know, if you live in a condominium or an apartment and you can't make a lot of noise and a lot of dust, um, you know, then a hand tool only shop is probably the way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, conversely, um, you know, my shop is kind of, you know, I consider that a luxury as far as workspaces go. My first shop was under a set of stairs in a townhouse. Um, I call it the Harry Potter shop. <laughs> it was, you know, Harry Potter under the stairs kind of right. thing. Yeah, the first uh, thing I yeah. ever built, I built in an attic. Oh, there you go. Yeah, in South Carolina. It was unheated, too, oh, and unair yeah, conditioned. Yeah. And it was miserable. But Yeah, I bet it was, yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I just, you know, it's, uh, I consider myself lucky that I have a shop that is separate from the rest of the house, so I can run a bandsaw and a thickness planer mm-hmm. and not worry too much about dust and everything else, but... You know, if if it came down to it, um, you know, I could I could be just fine woodworking without those as well. But sure. Um, uh, so, but yeah. So the, uh, well, so tell me about more a little bit more about the book. Is it going to be? Are you going to like set forth like here's what I think a, a, a minimum toolkit should be, and here's some. Now I'm going to show you how to use them, and we're going to build a few projects. Is it going to be something like that? Yeah, it's going to be. Yeah, we're going to talk about hand tools primarily, because I think that's the one um, common factor that, you know, most people, you know, whether they're working in a small room or a, or whatever, that they can kind of grasp. And, and working with hand tools is different than machine woodworking. Um, you know, when you're cutting joints by hand, you know, the techniques are different because not every joint needs to be identical. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that frees you up to do things a little bit differently. Um, as well, you know, talk about, like you said, you know, what, what goes into a toolkit to do, you know, basic woodworking, um, uh, 
I'm going to talk a little bit about sharpening, but not very much. There's a there's enough ink spilled on sharpening, so I don't I don't need to rewrite any of that. But uh, and then basically the the there's going to be a five or six um, projects in the book um, that starts with um, with a saw bench uh, and a and a bench that goes with it, and then um, the, the basically it's to kit up your own little workshop area. So mm-hmm. there'll be a bench in there, there'll be a saw bench, there's uh, shooting boards and mallets and things like that. So it basically, and then we'll all culminate uh, into a um, into a tool cabinet, which is going to take all of the skills um, that, you know, we kind of worked with before and bring them together to, uh, to create a cabinet. And if it turns, if the cabinet turns out good, or pardon me, turns out well, then you can put it up in your house. If it turns out not so well, then you can just use it in your shop. So, oh, that sounds cool. That sounds really a, a nice plan for the book. Um, mm-hmm. So now I think we uh, we're almost to a half hour, which probably means we need to wind things up a little bit. But um, I wanted to <coughs> excuse me. Uh, I wanted to ask you a few more questions, but these are going to be a little irreverent. Uh, as listeners to the podcast know that I just can't help but be a little irreverent from every now and then. So I first, yeah. I wanted to ask about the new Canadian prime minister, whose name I, I believe is Bubbles. <laughs> yeah, Bubbles from, uh, <laughs> from, the uh, from the trailer park. Boys. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. he's the new prime minister, right? He, he is. Um <laughs> Yeah, he's uh, he's an he's an interesting fella. Uh, he's he's much better than the guy we had. Oh yeah, he really likes kitties, right? He does. He likes kitties. He likes. Uh, he's also a big fan of marijuana. He's a big fan. Uh, of marijuana. Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah I yeah, feel uh, he, a lot of our uh, people listening may not know who Bubbles is, but he's a character on a Canadian television show called The Trailer Park Boys. Which is fantastic, yeah, by that's the way. Right. Yes, yeah. All right. So, uh, all kidding aside, let's get down to serious business here. Explain, yeah. explain to our listeners who, again, are primarily uh, in the United States, what craft dinner is. Oh, what's craft dinner? Okay. Um, well, I think I think Americans have craft dinner, but they don't call it that. We do it's macaroni yeah. and. It's macaroni and cheese made by the craft company. Yes, but isn't it – in Canada, isn't it true that just down here, like we call any type of tissue for your nose a Kleenex? You, right. You guys call anything that's mac and cheese, it's called craft dinner. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it? or sometimes it's referred to uh, as KD. KD, that's right. Just KD, yeah. Just plain yeah, KD. Yeah, craft dinner was so that's like nineteen eighties kind of terminology. Oh, I see. Yeah. In the in you the, know, in an era now where we shorten everything to, you know, KFC, you know, all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's K D. But I mean, um there are many Canadians who subsist on on craft dinner uh solely. Yeah. Uh, craft Yeah, and you can you can you can spot them because they're kind of orangey in color. <laughs> uh, and not and, too uh, healthy. They're a bit sluggish. Yeah. So they they KD poutine and Alexander Keith's beer. Yeah. Although the Alexander Keith's, I don't know. I would make. I mean, there's a lot of people out in the East Coast that would hang me, but I, I just I'm not a big fan of it. Right. Uh, 
Yeah, I've had some too light for my liking. Yeah, I've had some really good beers in Canada. That was not one of them, though. No, no, you're right. Yeah, we've got a lot of a lot of micro breweries that are uh, that are showing up. Same in the United States. I mean, it's a great time to be alive for beer. I think. Yes. Yeah. Now we probably should circle back to uh, to woodworking uh, in some. In, sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, unfortunately we're a woodworking podcast. Uh, yeah, I'll talk about whatever you want. <laughs> right. Um, you know, something I'm kind of curious about. Uh, so you live outside of Ottawa. What's the, yeah. what are the domestic hardwoods like up there? What do you have available? Um, we get a lot of maple. Um, uh, you know, finding figured maple is pretty easy. So if you wanted uh, curly or bird's eye, that's pretty easy to get. Um uh, it's easy to get uh, oak and things like that. Uh, birch, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the local cherry. Like you can get local cherry, but it's not the same as let's say something like from Pennsylvania. Right. Uh, it just seems to be a little gnarlier. It's um, uh, it's a little tougher to work with. It's uh, it's it's kind of like the difference between mahogany and sapele. Oh yeah, sure. Okay. You know, like similar color, similar attributes, but Sapele is just it's a, it's much uh coarser mm-hmm. wood than than uh, than let's say mahogany. Um so I would compare them like that. Okay. Um but yeah, and I mean if you're out in the West Coast, you can get Doug fir, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked with Doug fir for the first time uh just a couple of months ago. Yeah, I've and, built uh, quite a bit fantastic. with Doug fir. Sorry, I, I've, I've built quite a bit with Doug fir. It's really, you know, you you want to get it as vertical grain is what they call it when it's softwood, not quarter saw. That's right, yeah. But uh, vertical grain Doug fir is really nice. A very nice. Yeah, wood. yeah, it looks. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. So it was actually you who told me that softwoods are called vertical grains, and and hard, in hardwood it's considered quarter sawn. So yeah, I don't know why that. I, it must have something to do with the fact that softwoods are primarily used in the con- construction industry, but I I don't know. Yeah, I, I would I would suspect that's what it is, but uh, mm-hmm. but uh, it was good to know the terminology because I kept hearing it referred to as vertical grain. Right, I wasn't sure why they just weren't calling it quarters on. So. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we probably uh, should wind it up there before you and I get too far off track and get, get someone gets in trouble or fired. Um, yeah. Well, it won't be me. <laughs> right. It'll probably yeah just be me. Um, and I, we don't. I don't want to do that. Uh, so yeah. anyway, so. So this is uh, Vic Tesselin. Uh, we've been talking to Vic Tesselin, and his article is called Four Planes for Joinery, and it's going to be in issue 246 of Fine Woodworking, which will be out, I think, in roughly two months from now. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, and it's, it's about using hand planes to cut joinery. So it's a good article. If I do say so myself. Um, anyways, a, uh, thanks for joining us, Vic, and uh, have a good Christmas. Hey, it was my pleasure. All right, take care. Vic Deslin. That's right, the man, Vic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, two things stuck out in my craw. In, in your craw? Yeah. Or just stuck out? Uh, so one was his shop. So he made a point about saying that, you know, small spaces force you to pare down to what you actually need. Uh, the longer you would work, the more you realize you can get by with a lot less. This is a potentially very controversial yeah. topic because we all really like 
tools. Well, right. yeah. I mean, I, I think to put a positive spin on that is great. And you can do a lot of good work in a really, really small shop. But, you know, the reality is, is like, you know, to say, yeah, the longer you, you would work, you know, the smaller the shop you need. I just, sorry. I'm, <laughs> You're not buying. We you know Mike's not going to give up his no, machines. Nobody on this staff is looking to move into a smaller shop. So you didn't like uh, another woodworker I heard of. I, I'm not going to name any names. You didn't when you started woodworking get a piece of wood and and set it down on the floor of your shop and contemplate it for a year before touching it with a single blade. I do do that. Oh really? <laughs> Interesting. I I mean it depends on what. I was doing with my woodworking, you know, if I, all I did was make boxes for my own enjoyment, I could see having a small shop, you know, cause you don't really need a lot of big machinery for, to do that. You know, uh, I could get by with a small bandsaw, a, a four inch joiner, something like that, an old four inch joiner. And, um, maybe they, incidentally, <laughs> when I was at years ago, a couple years ago, when I was at, uh, Nakashima's, shop i was in the chair shop and i noticed their jointer was a little four inch walker turner <laughs> that's yeah. it and that's and it. it looked like it had been around <clears throat> since the civil war there's something I, I recently watched a documentary about uh these particular f- types of furniture makers in japan and there's something i it struck me as it would be very calming and quiet quieting and relaxing just have a small little shop where all I did all day was have this one jig that made 45 degrees perfectly with a hand plane. That's all I did all day. Just did that. And I could do that in like a closet somewhere. <laughs> all right. Not a, I didn't need to have a window maybe. <laughs> so uh, but I, could, I could be okay in a small shop. Here's my question. And actually, when I, I was there, let me just say this. Yeah. Let me say this to you, mister. <laughs> let me pose this to you. Yes. <laughs> you are correct, sir. Um, <laughs> when I was there... It's 170 square feet, roughly. Yeah. It didn't feel small, you know? But he didn't have a table saw. Um, he did. Did not. He did not. No table saw, no jointer. Right. So, but it didn't feel too small. It felt nice. Um, well, he, so here's, here's the second thing I, that I, I wanted to ask both of you. So he talked about the first, well, the, the ugliest, worst thing he ever built, and it turned out, surprise, that it was the first piece of furniture that he ever built, which was this... Uh, this little side table or nightstand with horrible aniline dye over pine. So my question to you guys, ugliest or, or first thing you ever built, lay it on me. Hmm. Well, that's probably two different questions for me, two different answers. Well, all right, then answer it by whichever one's going to be more interesting. So the first thing I ever made, okay. uh, I had no clue about making things. and no, I didn't even know what our joints were really. So I wanted to make my wife a gardening box, and <clears throat> I made it in the attic above our duplex during our the second year we were married. <clears throat> and um, I, so I just went to Home Depot, and I was like, I could, I, you know, I I want to make something. I figured if I made it so that there were like one finger and one notch at the end of each side, it would they would overlap. I get it. And I could make them stick together. So I just went to Home Depot and was like, all right, well, what tools would I need to do that? I mean, I'd you know I'd use tools my whole life, so I was like, okay, let me get one of these saws like that, and let me get, get one a of chisel, them there, jiggy saws. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so I ended up making this thing, and uh, I was going to give it to my wife for Christmas. We go down to my parents' house for Christmas, and I hadn't finished it yet, but it was basically done. It just needed to be glued up, and my dad had clamps. 
um, and I tried to put it together, and my and my dad was like, "He's like, what in the hell is this thing? It's like a Chinese puzzle box. How does it go together? You know, because each joint was so they were so all irregular, right? You know, uh, there's no uniformity to them, so it had to be put together a particular way. But that box is still to that you know that caddy is still together, and it's still being used and. Uh, it's not super attractive, but by no means is it and ugly. And by that you mean, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> but I have, I did, I did make something that was really ugly, which I, uh, I abhor now. But we still have it. What is that? It is the uh, we. Ma- I made this TV cabinet, and I made it like a stick frame almost, and put it like a skin on it on the outside. And then my wife at the time, like dark brown and lime green were really popular interior decorating colors. <laughs> so I painted it dark brown. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, the, door, the doors were like MDF. And I just put moldy on it to make it look like a raised panel. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so then we decided to repaint it. And I was just, I don't know what, I was probably angry about something. So I just was like, you know, I don't care what she says. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint it the color I wanted. So I painted it sort of a sorry dry having. pumpkin orange color. Yeah. And I stripped the, or I remade the top and sort of stained the top brown, dark brown. See, my ugliest thing I ever built was one of my first things too. And it was also a like TV thing. Yeah. When I was in college over this one summer, I needed something for our apartment. So I got some crappy birch plywood from the hardware store and i made a a box and then i i painted imagine a box and then i painted all white all right and then i edged all the plywood with strips of pine that i had stained so they kind of came out looking like pumpkin orange and then i took a jigsaw and made a little piece of you know i don't know profiled an edge for the bottom you know the framework that it sits upon sure Mm -hmm. Now, I got kind of cool with it because then I took some – I found these things called bear ball-bearing drawer slides, right? And then I was like, ah, oh, I can use these for my record player. So I screwed those onto the sides, and then I built a little shelf for the record player so you could pull yeah. it out. all right. It worked pretty darn well, actually. It was all drywall screwed together. There were no joints. It worked well, it was, but mm-hmm. looking back on it, like the white <laughs> and then the pumpkin – oh, God. It was yeah. hideous. Yeah. Mike? Well, the first thing that I made – in relocating to Connecticut is, I'd have to say it's, on one hand, I'd say, sure, it's ugly. On the other hand, I really like it. So um, I needed, we had, we moved in, everything was in boxes. This is back in the day with the VCR. We had a little television set and a VCR and one cabinet that was only big enough for one or the other. So I needed something to be able to support the TV above my little VCR. So I went to Home Depot, got a piece of 1 by 12 pine, you know, cut a wide length, maybe two feet long, and then two other lengths, six inches long. And I dovetailed the corners really quickly in about 10 minutes in a garage that was unheated with a single light bulb. I pulled out a saw and I chopped out these big sort of massive dovetails. I didn't even bother gluing the thing on. In fact, that, that lumber stamp is still like on the bottom of this thing. And so it was basically this U-shaped thing with these rough dovetail corners that fit perfectly Mm. i put that there vcr went underneath tv went on top so this thing went on to have like five different lives in my house from being you know when my kids were were little it was a step stool to get up to the sink and wash their face it became uh i don't know various things throughout the house and we still have it and it's just you know never got to finish um it's got a very nice patina of use it's Mm. it's developed and it's actually become (laughs) 
uh, you know, maybe embarrassingly or not, a lot of my current furniture now kind of looks, looks like, like this thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, so that's it. So, All right. you know, you do what you do to get the job done and, and, you know, make some use out of it later. Well, let's get our jobs done and answer a couple more questions. The first one is from Jeff, who writes, I'm getting more and more into hand tools and want to do more joinery by hand, both dovetails and mortise and tenon. I'm on a budget, but believe you get what you pay for, and I hate buying a tool twice. Is there one handsaw that will give me the ability to accomplish both dovetails and tenons and be used for small crosscuts? I don't have the budget for all three. Um, and uh, he goes on to talk about you know various different models. Should I get this one? Should I get that? Should I get this? It's expensive and blah, blah, blah. So he wants like a one-size-fits-all handsaw, basically. Okay. Uh, so if I – well, let's I'll say this first. Hmm. <clears throat> Uh, no, I'll say this other thing first. Uh, okay. if I were to get one saw, <laughs> which I'm, I'm, I'm very tempted to do this myself, uh, I'd get rid of all my saws and just try to have like one. Uh, but I would have probably a 12 to 14 inch saw. So like a carcass saw, small tenon saw filed this new or not new, but this recently, uh, people have begun using this again called a hybrid file. It's like a halfway between a rip and a crosscut file. I've used them. They work well. Not as fast as a rip for ripping. Otherwise it's known as a sash cut. A sash, yes, a, a sash saw. Yes. But I can't say that too fast. Sash saw. Sash saw by the sheesh war. Sash saw. Sort of sound like Sean Connery. Um, <clears throat> that's what I would get, personally, with a pistol grip. So the idea is it's, it's kind of like the combo blade in your table saw. Yes, exactly. And they cool. work really well. They do work well. So that's what I would get if I was after one saw. And I would definitely, you know, uh, <clears throat> there's lots of good saw makers on the, uh, in the market today, and several of them make the style of saw. So that's probably what I would get because it would be big enough to do tenons uh, and big enough to do case joinery dovetails, mm -hmm. but still small enough to do drawer dovetails. Um, and actually, in point of fact – uh, Chris Gochner is currently wrapping up a tool test for us of just this type of saw, hmm. except it's not limited to hybrid files. It's 12-inch uh, carcass saws is normally what they're called. And uh, he's testing out rip, crosscut, and hybrid files. And that will be published uh, later this spring. So right. if you don't mind waiting a little while, that's uh, you could see which one Chris liked the best. Now, some of these saws available with this hybrid little grind or, or sharpening profile can be kind of pricey. So what if I just got an old saw, old back saw in decent shape and sent it out to be sharpened in this thing? I could probably save a little bit of money. You could do that, yeah. yeah. Yep, you want to find a good sharpener. Um, Matt Cianci is a good sharpener in Rhode Island. Um, I think Bad Axe still sharpens saws, maybe. Okay. Uh, and Blackburn Tools, maybe. Yep. And I would say one other suggestion, if you don't want to go through the trouble of this or spend a lot of money on a saw you're not sure you want or you're ready for just yet, um, I would maybe start with a Japanese back saw because you can do all those things with a saw. It's going to be razor sharp right out of the box, and you're going to spend somewhere between 30 and 40 bucks for it. And even if you do move up to a Western-style back saw, you'll still get plenty of use out of your Japanese saw. I mean like a Japanese dazuki. Dazuki. Yes. All right. Yeah, they work fine for – but you can't – the problem with the Dazuki is the height beneath the spine 
may not be suitable for ripping uh, for doing tenon cheeks. Oh yes, okay. Because you'll hit the might hit the the spine. I yes. think that for I think there are a lot of saws available where that would not be necessarily an issue. Perhaps I I don't mm, perhaps perhaps in the more expensive uh, Japanese style saws. Yeah, Michael. Might more closer to the thirty eight dollar range as opposed to thirty two dollar range. All right, later this afternoon, I want you to send me a link of a saw that can a Dazuki saw that can do inch and a half tenons cheeks. Inch and a half. All right, you find one. All right, moving on. That's a challenge to you before you guys. Attack one another. You got it. <laughs> Next question comes from Chris, who writes, Hey, guys. Got into a very heated debate in the shop the other day when the boss found out I was not using the flange on the arbor when I was using a three-quarter-inch dado stack at the table saw. I never have, as this leaves only a tiny bit of the nut <clears throat> holding the stack on the arbor. The boss insisted I was wrong and that my thinking was dangerous. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, here's my first thought. The yeah. boss is always the right. The boss is always right, so just shut up and do what he says. <laughs> <laughs> you know. All right. I don't find that amusing. <laughs> That's because you're not the boss. Uh, I, I personally... I am the boss of one person. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm actually, the boss no, of wait, me. She, doesn't, she <laughs> went to another franchise and abandoned me. I forgot. I have... Uh, I have admittedly gone flangeless in the past. Mm. Um, Is there a citation for that? And uh, and I have known others who on occasion go without a flange on a wide dado blade. I don't think it's best practice. I like the old flange on there. However, I do like the nut fully seated yeah. as well. So The um, nut should be, yeah, exactly. I, I had the same thought. The nut should be fully seated. There should be threads going all the way through the, yes. that nut. I asked yeah. Raleigh Johnson on this because we had an old Powermatic 66 in the wood fine working shop. And it's the same thing. You get the three-quarter inch dado and it's a really wide nut. And it's like it didn't get fully seated. So I asked Raleigh Johnson, our machinery expert, when he was around. I said, you know, how many threads ideally should be, you know, in contact? And he said, all of them. Right. So I thought, okay. I said, oh, golly, all so of them. So really, I think the, b- both um, uh, this fellow and his boss are kind of wrong because i thought that the solution here is well then you shouldn't be using a full three-quarter inch you know you shouldn't be using a three yeah inch i mean that's stack. the solution is to stop using a three-quarter inch dado because most likely you don't i don't know what this guy's doing but he yeah. probably doesn't need it to be three-quarter inches there you know there whatever he's doing there's probably a way to do it with a thinner or a narrower uh dado set yeah. set up yeah, so if you're dadoing a shelf let's say that shelf is three-quarters of an inch rather than going a full width dado Go half inch dado and then rabbit your shelf to fit the dado. It's a lot easier to rabbit a piece to fit a dado than it is to try to nail the width of a dado to mm-hmm. something, especially if it's like undersized plywood, where now you got all these shims in there and you're trying yeah. to nail something. Uh, that's like horribly difficult to do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's possible in a commercial setting that there's some level of production going on, which I guess could. Sure, if you have a boss, it means you're probably trying yeah, to get some work done, done fast. So yeah. th- I mean, you're right, I, and I would. That's how I would do it as well. And if you're doing tenons, you know, do them in two passes instead of one pass. Sure. So you have uh, an inch wide tenon, throw in a half inch wide data yeah, set in there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so think about an alternative way to set up your dado set so that you can do, make these cuts safely. Yep. And another good, uh, reason to go for a narrower dado set than the full width is that when you're making a cut with a dado blade, that's really wide, there's a lot of like lifting force on that blade as it's yes. making a cut. And it's really easy to get 
you know, to not take that full depth cut as that workpiece is being lifted up off the ground. And I found, especially with tenons, I do have more success with a slightly narrower dado setup, taking multiple passes. Um, let me, uh, are you done? I'm done. Uh, let me just tell one story really quickly, something I've seen that's more unsafe than what this guy's doing. Because, you know, it's not that unsafe. So a guy who was uh, on YouTube who was going to, I think he was doing a dado, and but his uh, his blade would not retract far enough beneath the table uh, for him to. Oh, I know where this is going. For him to start with a shallow cut and work up, so he just had it more or less the full depth that he wanted, and he just like set it down on top of the blade of the dado set while it was running and was like running it back and forth oh. to try to start the <laughs> cut, and I was just like. Holy cow. On one hand, I was like, I was appalled. I was like, you shouldn't be showing this. On the other hand, I was like, I hope you cut your finger off and no. do show it. No. What? What? So that people know that what he was doing was idiotic. It's a bit extreme. Wow. Jeez, Matt. It was completely stupid. Uh, yeah, true. To set a running board <laughs> down on the top of He's a probably blade. probably listening to Shop Talk Live right yeah, now. I think we maybe we're guilty of just setting the safety bar a little too high. What? <laughs> That's... That actually, that limit's not a safety limit. That's the limit to get into the gene pool. All right. Before, let's head into our next segment of the day. That's going to be uh, an update on the goings-on at Colonial Williamsburg's Working Wood in the 18th Century Conference with our very own Tom McKenna. Tom? Welcome to the show. Hi. I I love the buckle shoes and the... Poofy shirt you're, you've donned for this occasion. <laughs> what do you think of my do-rag? Nice. It doesn't, doesn't fit at all. It's terrible. Um, so what's the deal? Where have you been? You disappeared. I, I, well, I was in uh, Williamsburg, dude, um, for four wonderful days. Uh, it was really a great show this year. It's the 17th year that uh, we've been co-sponsoring this program with Colonial Williamsburg. Um, and it, this year was on desks, so it was a very cool program. And they did some different things than they've done in the past, um, which really made the program a little bit more fast-moving uh, in terms of the presenters and what they were doing on stage and, and how deep they were able to get into the original pieces and their anatomy and construction. Right on. Is it true that they uh, put a timer on them, and if they didn't finish their presentation within time, they were all fired? No, Ben Franklin came out with a lash and you know, <laughs> kicked them off the stage. Uh, no, what really – it was very interesting. You know, in the – in the past, and I know, Matt, you've you've gone to the shows a, at least a couple times, I think, right? I think I've been three or four times. Um, what has always sort of bogged them down was the process of, of doing this intricate carving or, or detailed work from start to finish. And this year, what they did is they, they had stunt pieces ready. And so they, they showed – they did enough work to give you the idea of what was happening, and then they moved on. And it gave them a lot more time to – you know, really zoom in on, on the piece that they were replicating and talk about, you know, all the details that were inside. It was really uh, fast-moving and a lot more, I think, a lot more educational, for at least for me. And, and what's, did you get to check out the, uh, the Hay cabinet shop? No. No? no I had no time. Um, I, was, I was pretty much involved with, with the show and uh, doing some other, I had some other meetings uh, that, that was going that were going on while I was down there. So no, I did not get to the hay shop. I've, I've been to the hay shop, but I've been there before. I took my my kids there before, and so uh, I'm sure your kids love the hay shop. My, <laughs> <laughs> well, 
my my son did, uh, my and my wife did. My daughter liked their their puffy shirts. Mm-hmm. She really did. Um, oh man! But uh, when I was there, when I when I was at the hay shop a few years ago, Corey uh, Lofttime was was there and actually gave a a really nifty quick tour of the place and you know showed my son some cool woodworking techniques uh, like some chisel work. So it w- it was fun. Yeah, the hay shop is really cool. So By the way, I just um, just so people understand here, I I was actually potting uh, Tom up and I'm, potting I'm you down by accident, Matt. And but I was actually doing the opposite because right, I have I'm, my mixer mislabeled. So I got really loud. If, if, yeah, you got really loud for a minute there. Sorry, <laughs> it's everybody. Funny. I, I didn't feel a thing. Good. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, uh, so how does this? How does it work? Set the scene. You're in a uh, big, a big, huge. You're theater? you're in a basically a big theater. I think it holds uh, about 250 people, and uh, they have all the pieces. They typically do three, maybe four pieces per uh, per uh, segment of the conference. I should say that there are two parts to the conference. They do um, two separate sessions. So there's a f- one session that goes four days, and then there's an- another one that follows. And they're identical. Four days. Yeah, they're <clears throat> identical. Yeah, it's two different sessions. Um, yeah. And they have the different presenters spend about an hour and a half, sometimes two hours on one aspect, and then they move on to the next presenter. And it goes on uh, over the course of the, the whole conference. So you don't spend a whole day on one piece. You get a taste of one, then another presenter comes up, gives, you know, his or her presentation, uh, you get a taste of that, and then they move on. It's pretty, it's pretty quick moving. Yeah, and I'd say I do not like period furniture. I mean, I hate it. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it, and uh, I wouldn't build it myself. But I have always enjoyed the conference because woodworking is woodworking, you know, and it's it's interesting and it's fascinating. So even though I never plan to make any period furniture. I always enjoy going because I always learn something. You seem to have a bit of a period uh, tool cabinet in your shop. I know, but that's uh, we, we don't want to go off on that. But I can one day tell the story about how that got made. <laughs> the drawers open so beautifully and easily, yes. I've noticed. <laughs> that's not true. There's no problem with the drawers. What are you kidding me? They're, one of those drawers is like cemented shut. <laughs> Well, it might very well be. I thought it was. I, I thought it was because it was like one of the first glued big, it shut. That was one of the first big pieces you built. It's, That's the first real piece of furniture I ever yeah. made. That's the faux drawer, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now that I ended up with a period piece because I the the guy they taught me to make right. furniture makes period furniture, so he taught me to make furniture the way he makes furniture. Uh, so, uh, Tom, you traveled with John Benzin our senior editor who always does those Masters of the Craft slideshows online for us? Well, we took separate trips. You took separate trips. Yeah, yeah. He came down in the snow. I didn't. Okay. But uh, the, it was really, what was really interesting about this conference, and, and because I think they were able to dive into the furniture so much, was uh, just some fascinating details that I never really thought about in, in how you know I work and, and I think of what we show in the magazine. And uh, what was really fascinating, one of the details on, on one of the desks, I think it was um, the Philadelphia Scripter that was being presented by uh, Bill Pavlik, who's uh, one of the journeyman uh, cabinet makers in the hay, in the, uh, in the hay shop. He uh, was pointing out all of the surfaces that weren't visible were just basically left with a scrub plane. It was really rough. Um, and it's just those kinds of details that, you know, you see that these makers, you know, in their dark shops weren't worried about the stuff that wasn't going to be seen. They the focused bottom all of a drawer, their attention yeah. on, yeah, all the attention was on the on the details that that would be visible. So um, that was interesting. And, and all the hidden compartments that were in that 
cabinet were, I, were amazing. I find that, you know, it's sort of interesting that that's how they worked back then. But you know what really gets my goat? Hmm. <laughs> it's when people say, well, you know, they did it that way back then. So that's how you should do it now. Or that's how, you know, there's no need for you to surface both sides of the wood. And I'm like, no, that's how I want to do it. Shut up. <laughs> Fair enough. It's funny, though, because I was at a um, – I was, I was shooting a video series with Phil Lowe once, and we were looking at this um, late 18th century secretary um, that he had restored, I don't know, like 25 years earlier. And I saw the same thing. Like anything that wasn't visible was – it looked god-awful. And at one point, he pulls out a drawer, and he's like, yeah, you know, look at this. And look, this is like a million-dollar piece of furniture. Yeah. I'm not kidding. He's like, oh, look at this, look at this. And he tosses me the drawer. I'm like, uh, <laughs> I don't want to just put that back there. Well, uh, when I was – in 2014 for the conference, I was down there, and Steve Lada was the featured presenter. And someone asked Steve a, a, a question related to this, and they, something about, you know, what's the biggest difference between, you know, the way you make furniture or – and he said, listen – the clients that I have today would never tolerate this type of work, you know, with all these rough surfaces on the inside. He says they expect perfection, and that's how you have to make furniture today because the, the standards were just different. Well, I think Rob Millard, we had a uh, – I think that was Steve Lauder that said that. It probably was because I was there last year too. What, what it, what's interesting, Rob Millard was one of the presenters, and, and he's a period furniture maker – and he made a point that, you know, we had a panel discussion talking about um, one of the questions that I brought up was, you know, when you may reproduce a piece, do you make it warts and all? And the guys in the cabinet shop were basically saying, well, if we're doing something for Williamsburg, we have to make it, you know, 100 percent the way they did it back then. And Rob Millard said, well... Some of my clients want, that, want it that way. Some of them want me to do it a different way, and some of them want me to, you know, fix the flaws that he thinks, you know, are going to result in broken panels or cracked drawer bottoms. And there's a like lot that. of that in period furniture. It's kind of it's kind of funny. Well, it's interesting. One of the <clears throat> one of the pieces that they illustrated, um, I can't remember which one. I think it was the Philadelphia Scripter. Um, they pulled out the drawers, and I was amazed that the drawer bottoms were just sitting in rabbits and nailed in. Yeah, mm -hmm. I've seen tons of nailed on drawer bottoms down there. And and Bill said that, you know, only a couple of drawers had cracked. And uh, he looked like maybe one may have been replaced. And so he's... So he we're was, all overly obsessive. Well, I don't oh, know if it's that. Yeah. I, think, I think it's because these pieces are probably in climate-controlled areas. And there's no movement going on. For a long but, time, they weren't. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I don't know how to explain that. You know, it could be that the lumber, they chose really good quarter sawn stock for the drawer bottom, so it really wasn't moving. I, I don't know. The easier way to do it is to just epoxy the bottom of the drawer yeah. to the bottom edge of the sides. Just yeah. And in some of the cases, the make drawer. Make from plastic. <laughs> but even, even the grain direction in some of the drawers was, was oriented yeah. incorrectly or to our standards. So it's funny that maybe they were just learning back then, or maybe it was made by an apprentice who didn't know any better, and the lead cabinet maker just said, well, you know, it's a little bit enough. of both, <laughs> you know, let's get it out of the yeah. shop and move on. I don't know. But, you know, it's, it's a fascinating um, discussion and, and look at how furniture is made. And, and to see, you know, all the processes are, are pretty much the same. It's just kind of different tooling. You know, it's yeah. really it's really fun. Yeah, I love the conference. I absolutely love going down there. And I'm really angry at John Benson for going to my stead this year. 
So uh, we'll have to, he and I are going to duke it out next year. Mano a mano. That's right. That'll be awesome. John, incidentally, was the captain of his high school wrestling team. Was he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Little known fact. That's all right. <laughs> Abs- not, there's no truth to that whatsoever. If no. you knew John, you would probably be he still has his jersey, laughing copiously. That's right. I have, I have mad bow staff skills. You, uh, what now? I don't even know what a bow staff is. <laughs> I'm mean, mad. It's in the Napoleon Dynamite reference. God, you guys are so old. You're so stupid. <laughs> You're so stupid, Ed. <laughs> I do have a picture of a liger. A liger. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. All right. Well, should we answer, uh, should some we answer a couple more questions? Humor. Huh? <laughs> we can answer some more should questions. Should we answer, answer one more question? What do you need to know? Yeah. We'll answer All right. one more question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this one, and then I'm going to leave <clears> it to the three of you. Uh, yeah, Tom, Mike's still Matt, here. And Mike, because poor Mike is sitting in the corner looking down at the carpet. Mike, <laughs> Mike he's Mikeless. <laughs> Hello. Uh, Mike so let's Mike-less. see. I am going to, let's see here. All right. I know that Mike liked this question, so I'm going to please Mike. You ready? Is this it about the guy on the Florida panhandle? You just hold on there. Hold your horses. <laughs> uh, this one comes from Mark, who says, Hi, guys. My question is about the integrity and thus the longevity of a solid wood dado joint. For example, where a shelf enters a dado in a case side, typically you see only glue used to hold the parts together. Some fancier joinery, like sliding dovetails, are occasionally used where the mechanical component enhances the joint integrity. With the former, I question the glue-only approach, as every glued surface is long to short grain, a rather poor foundation for glue. Am I being unduly concerned with the common glue-only practice, or need I practice up on other (laughs) joinery techniques? No iron fasteners, thank you. I was written like an yeah, SAT yeah, question. Well, I did. I thought this was a really good question because um, Mark gets to sort of the the heart of the matter with certain joints and their mechanical strength and sort of what they're designed to do. And you're right, a, a dado joint, like a shelf that's dadoed into the side of a cabinet, um, it's a really effective joint to keep that shelf from falling to the floor. I mean, it's re- very, very strong in shear, but to his point, because all the glue surfaces are long grain to end grain, structurally that joint is not keeping the sides from bowing out. From bowing out. Yeah. There's no strength there. Mm-hmm. So it's not inherently bad joint, but I would combine that with other joints. Say if you had a, a, a case, I might dovetail the corners to keep the case together. Right. And then you can have a dado shelf in the center. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it depends okay. on how tall that case was. It's like a tall bookshelf. Yes. I would probably you know, do dovetails at the top and the bottom, and then at least one, one sliding, dovetail, one sliding in dovetail in the middle, Right, and then the rest of them could be just dados. Sure. If you think of a sliding dovetail, it's in essence it's a dado joint with an angled shoulder. Yes. And that angle does mechanically keep everything yeah. together. Right. And you could also do a partial sliding dovetail at the front as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or you can have a face frame. Uh, on the front of this case, mm-hmm. which is basically connecting the sides of the case to that shelf, which is dadoed in place. Yep. And that'll hold it in place. Or if the bottom of a case is dadoed to the sides, you can have glue blocks along the bottom mm-hmm. of that joint to keep everything together. So, yeah, here's one joint you don't want to use, uh, like in the middle of any type of cabinet that I discovered because yes. it messed in the cabinet boat out was uh, the little bird's beak joint. Instead of it's sort of like a dado, but instead of having oh, a flat yeah. bottom, it comes down to a point. Oh yes, yeah. which is a really nice decorative 
joint gorgeous has zero no, if, if anything that that acts to push the joint <laughs> you know, it's funny though i saw in it's funny, to that point in in some of the cabinetry that we saw at williamsburg they used the bird's beak a lot in the gallery section sure there would be fine there so, yeah, yeah where yeah. it's sort of held in place by the the right. outer structure of the case right yeah. not, it has no structural value yes yeah none whatsoever well that's that's the last question then ed that's it. I think it's going to do it for today because um, you guys just talk too much. We do. All right, guys. We get lots of comments on our page in the iTunes store as well as through email. And every week we like to read a few on the air. So here it goes. Number one for this week from Nellie Nell. Humorous, informative, good guests. Very practical podcast that holds my interest with good personalities. Well done. Another one from Ren15 who writes, Another great show, especially funny. Could you field a question about... It's supposed to be comments. Why are you putting <laughs> questions, questions in the iTunes page, <laughs> Ren15? All right, here we go. Let's see if we can help them out real quick. Could you field a question about the different tool steels? I'm looking for new chisels, but I get confused as to the attributes of O1, A2, CRB, PMV11, SAT2, XF1B. Which one is best? Well, there's, the answer is not, there's not a single best one. They all have different qualities, what are the di- right. different what attributes. What are the different properties? I have no idea what CRV is, except for the car my wife drives, made by Honda. But O1 tool steel, very easy to sharpen, gets really sharp initially. Yes. But that initial sharpness breaks down. Yes. And the usable sharpness does not last very long. But it's perfect for pairing chisels, for example. Now, that sounds like really, really horrible. But that's like every single tool made prior to, yeah. say, like 10 years ago. So it's yeah. kind of relative. Right, right, right. O1 is still a great tool. Yep. Uh, A2, harder to sharpen than O1. Uh, a little bit slower to sharpen, I should say. Yes. Uh, the initial sharpness, not as good, but the usable sharpness lasts much longer. Yes. I would say it's more difficult to get sharp. I'm not sure. I guess maybe at a microscopic level, maybe you're not as sharp in terms of the particular grain of the steel oh the yeah i didn't mean level. to suggest because i've gotten a2 insanely sharp yes yes yeah um insanely insane but, in the minute but yeah. here's an odd thing in regard to chisels which is sort of strange because it sounds like well a2 that sounds good right <clears throat> but if you're sharpening at shallower angles the o1 steel actually holds up better yes. at yeah. like if you have a pairing chisel sharpened at maybe 22 or 25 degrees it's actually going to hold up better in o1 steel than a2 yeah a2 mm. uh the big maker of a2 chisels is lee nielsen and yes. they recommend their chisels be at a 30 degree primary bevel uh and so but i pair with my lee nielsen's and they work great too. yeah um, but I do prefer like an O one Japanese steel. Sure, and that's a chisel. whole that's other a can of worms. Different thing. Same. It's O one steel, but it's two layers of steel. One very very hard. But if we talk too much about that, Wilbur Pan will email us all and get angry. I don't want that because we're all idiots about it. And then PMV eleven uh, sharpens really well. I like the way it sharpens. Yes, gets crazy sharp. And stays crazy sharp. Yeah, yes. Have you tried the uh, chisels? Yes, I have yeah, a PMV have. 11 chisel and I have a okay. PMV blade. Oh, cool. PMV 11 blade as I have, well. I have a whole set of their chisels and they're wonderful. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And finally, a so-so review from the real Charles. Must be Prince Charles. Here of we Finland. go. <laughs> <laughs> this is clearly the best woodworking podcast I've found out there. Good. But there is... 
big room for improvement. These guys are very good woodworkers, but pretty poor comedians. I listen because, and when we say these guys, we're talking about Matt. <laughs> right. I listen because I'm interested in woodworking. If I wanted comedy, I'd listen to a comedy podcast. There's way too much time wasted on weak comedy and just plain silliness. Come on, guys. Stick to the subject at hand and spare me the weak humor. Then, and only then, you'll get my five-star rating. Got one thing to say what about you that. Say, what do you got to say about that, Kenny? I disagree. I, I can see. I can see where the real Charles is. I'm sorry, Prince Charles is coming from. Yeah, are we not? Sometimes fun- our humor is pretty juvenile. Yeah, it's always I mean, juvenile. Come on. We're not the yeah, funniest yeah. guys, but so what? We're not going to stop being us. Fair enough. All right. I am the wood robot. <laughs> I will answer your questions. <laughs> Charles right now is furious. He's like, ah, that's not funny. You will be assimilated. <laughs> you just, you just, you guys are tough. All right. That about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on February 13th, 2015 for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. Tom Pneumonia McKenna, I could hear you breathing. <laughs> You're so not used to being on a broadcast because I can hear that. This is what I heard in the background. <laughs> Poor Tom.